0: Okay guys, uh, back to work we go. Um, uh, we have Lord willing tonight and next Wednesday night to to wrap up this whole thing on the attributes of God. The last and final attribute that we have um, that we've been looking at for the last three or four weeks is the love of God. We've We've used the book of Hosea to do that. And so tonight we're going to finish up the Hosea look and then wrap things up next week, Lord willing. Okay, so we're We went through chapters 4 through 11 last week. Tonight we're going to do 12, 13, and 14, so you might want to turn over there. Um, Let me draw your attention to verse 2 of chapter 12. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Okay, folks, um, we saw last week in chapter 4, verse 1, that um, God started His... um, his controversy, and I, I try to portray it as some kind of courtroom setting where God is presenting His case as the prosecuting attorney, the plaintiff of course being Israel. And then you come to, um, to chapter 12 verse 2, and uh, the Lord has an indictment. It's interesting, gang, the, the, the Hebrew word that is translated controversy in chapter 4 verse 1 is the same word that's translated indictment over here. And why they're different, I do not know. But my point being is that that legal case that we were looking at last week continues. Although the audience that it's being aimed at is different. If you'll notice in in chapter 4, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. In chapter 12, verse 2, his indictment is against Judah. Now, gang... I hope I'm not going to insult anyone's intelligence in here, but um, what's the difference between those two, gang? I even have a, a a visual this week, which I've never done before. This is this is a map of Israel, um, and um, those of you who've been there recognize it. I think we when we go, we start up here and go all the way down there. But here here's the point: um, Israel had three kings. Um, Saul, David, and Solomon, and they all had a united kingdom. When Solomon died, um, his son Rehoboam takes over, and he does very poorly, and the kingdom splits. Um, uh, There's Jerusalem, somewhere just north of Jerusalem, and south was known as the southern kingdom, or Judah. Everything north of there was um, called the northern kingdom, or Israel. So I, I do that to say, when in these these earlier chapters, beginning in chapter 4, um, the prophet Hosea has the northern kingdom in his sights. Now in chapter 12, the sights change from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. <clears throat> and will punish Jacob. Now gang, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but those two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, went their separate ways. They had, all, they had different kinds of um, specifics, but essentially both of them forgot God. And um, they both fall uh, about 135 years apart. The northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722, I think. The southern kingdom falls to Babylon in 586. But the issues were the same. So the case that God has against Israel is not much different than the one he has against Judah. You just have to keep that distinction in mind. That's all I'm I'm trying to do for you. Gang, um, notice what is equated the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. Now folks, um, if you can do this real fast, um, if you can find Jeremiah, this is, you, don't turn there, it's just Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 20, declare this in the house of Jacob, proclaim it in Judah. The, the Old Testament often equates Jacob and Judah. But it often uses Jacob to represent the whole thing. Why Jacob? Well, let me show you that. Um, if you can go back to Genesis 32 real fast, I think you know this story. Uh, we'll talk more about Jacob in a second. But Jacob was the third of the three patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob meets up with God in, um, in Genesis chapter 32 and wrestles with God. He loses. And walks with a limp, you know, is the rest of his life. You may, I think you know that story. Um, but in that story, in the midst of the, um, the wrestling, look at verse 28. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Um, Israel derives her name from this event concerning Jacob. Um, gang, there's a lot of discussion in theological circles about when did Jacob really become a believer in Yahweh. I would suggest to you that it's in this event in Genesis 32. Um, and the reason that I suggest that is because that's where his name changes. He gets a whole new identity. and, and you'll notice um, uh, look at verse 31. The sun rose upon him as he passed. I, I just think all this language is trying to tell you that this wrestling with God event that left him limping for the rest of his life, God, Jacob wrestles with God and loses and rejoices in having lost and limps the rest of his life. Well, all I'm trying to show you is that the name Israel and the name Jacob, Israel was called Israel with a reflection, with an eye towards their ancestor Jacob. Now, gang, um, Judah's, back to chapter 12 of, uh, of Hosea, Judah's current disloyalty to God. Um, what you find in the book of Hosea is that that disloyalty is being illustrated with a recollection of certain events that are associated with Jacob. You understand that? For instance, verse 3, 12-3. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. You know what that's a reference to? That's Genesis 25, when Jacob and Esau were born. And you remember um, Esau was the firstborn? And he came out and then um, Jacob comes out and he's holding on to his heel. In fact, I want to read you this note. This is on page 94. It says, um, Jacob means, the, the, the term Jacob naming means he takes by the heel or he cheats. The term heel grasper became a Hebrew idiom describing people who were cheaters. Um, now, that's the first event in the life of Jacob that's mentioned in Hosea. But you know what happens. Jacob, his name becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and he cheats his brother out of the birthright. Remember the, the mess of porridge? Uh, soup? Soup? And then he, um, he deceives his daddy in, uh, by way of getting the, the um, paternal blessing. Remember, he dresses up like his brother. He sneaks in there and, and acts like he's Esau when he's not. His mother put him up to it. Remember all that? Jacob is a cheat. He's a deceiver. He's a bad man. Now, I say all that to say, folks, Judah's current disloyalty to God is being illustrated with a reference to the scoundrel whose name was Jacob. This indictment that you see in Hosea 12, I want you to go tell this in Judah, Southern Kingdom, tell it in Jacob, and then the the, the prophet goes on to give us four events out of the life of Hos- out of the life of Jacob, reminding God's people of what a louse. Jacob was first one of course I just told you about his birth um, he's a schemer. he's a deceiver. he cheats Esau two times. Um, Jacob was a schemer and a deceiver and what the prophet is saying is that what you that's what you are too Judah then look at verse 4, the, the second half of it. He met God at Bethel and there spoke with him, with us. Uh, guys, uh, do you remember that story? That too is out of the life of um, um, Jacob. But that's the one where the angels ascend and descend on that ladder. It took place at Bethel, a word that means the house of God. And uh, Jacob was sleeping with a rock under his neck. under his his head and uh, he has his dream but in that event this is what he says, listen to this if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house in peace then shall the Lord be my God do you see what Jacob said? Hey, God, I got a deal for you. <laughs> you, want to be, you want me to be yours? Okay, here's the deal. You feed me. You clothe me. You take good care of me. And then I'll do you a favor. You can be my God. Now, folks, that's in 28. In chapter 32... We just saw that he meets God and wrestles with him at Peniel. Where his name gets changed. Um, And I would suggest to you that this is the turning point in Jacob's life. His whole history, folks, had been a history of lying and cheating and scheming and disloyalties. And he, he he was a bad man. And so was Judah. Um, I'll show you one other, just in chapter 12 of Hosea. Uh, verse 12, Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served, you see there's his name, Jacob and Israel. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. Remember that? Uh, Rachel and Leah? And he served for, for seven years so that he could have Rachel. And the deceiver got deceived by Laban. And Laban shoves the firstborn Leah in that's not as pretty as Rachel. And in the dark desert night, he doesn't know who's in his uh, tent. Wakes up the next morning and realizes, why? You pulled a fast one on me. Yeah. Just like he's been doing all his life. But guys, all I'm trying to show you is that's what the prophet is doing here. He has a word for Judah. And he uses the history that they knew all too well about their father, Jacob. And they know he was a rat. He was a schemer. He was a deceiver. He was a sc- Scoundrel! And so are you, Judah. I want you to remember your history. Because you're that and far more. You're a deceiver. You're a schemer. You're a cad. You're a cheater. You're a scoundrel. And that is the message that God has for Judah, the southern kingdom. And then we get this repeated message that's throughout the book, but it's a couple places in these last three three chapters. This this case has been presented by God against against Judah. And then he says in verse 6 of 12, so you by the help of your god return he is calling israel to repent by the way he mentions that again in chapter 14 twice verse 1 return o israel to the lord your god verse 2 take with you words and return to the lord that's a that's a that's a good old testament word for repentance folks return come back you left You're a scoundrel. You're a cheat. Now, guys, with all of that as a backdrop, let me kind of summarize a bit. The message of the book of Hosea is a message about the triumph of love in spite of all the sin and provocations of his people. Let, let me just, speaking of those provocations, this is chapter 13, verse 2. And now they sin more and more. This is aimed at Judah now. And make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. said of them, those who offer human sacrifice, kiss calves. That's the people he's talking to, folks. The people of child sacrifice and idolatry and they kiss calves. The message of this book is a message about the triumph of love over sin and over provocation. It's the triumph over scoundrels. Like their ancestor Jacob. Folks, the, the question is not why did God love Jacob and not Esau. The question is, why does he love any of us? You know, in my systematics class, which I, if you haven't taken, I hope you'll do it. We'll do it in January, but... Um, I always come to that passage in, um, in Romans 9, verse 13. And um, if you don't know it, you ought to take a look at it. It says, And Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. And boy, the whole Arminian world blows up over that text. Jacob I love. Oh, I think it's terrible. Terrible. Terrible that he, that he hated Esau and loved Jacob. And Spurgeon's reply was this. The amazing thing to me is not that God hated Esau. The amazing thing is that he loved Jacob. How could anybody love somebody like this? How could anybody love somebody like this? You room full of scoundrels. How does God do that? Well, guys, I would suggest to you that the best answer in the whole book is found in chapter 14, verse 4. It's a great statement, ladies and gentlemen. He says... I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. (laughs) You know, I know a little Hebrew. Not much. And I was trying to track down that word freely. I just want you to know, I failed. Um, There's so many squiggles in that text that I could not figure out which one of them was freely. But the the whole idea... um, that God will love them freely. I will not love them in response to their love for me, because they don't have any. I will not love them because of their performance, because their performance. You know they kiss calves, don't you? they got all kinds of little things they worship instead of me. Like their jobs, or their kids. I will not love them because of their performance. I will love them in spite of their rebellion. I will love them freely. Voluntarily. Without coercion. I will love them because I cannot help but love them. Based on something that's found inside of me, not them. And based on something that will be accomplished on their behalf by Jesus Christ. Gang, this is one of the points that I've been trying to make in this little five-week series thing. What is it that ultimately sweeps idolatry out of our souls? What is it that ultimately... Brings all of the bales of our life crashing down. It is not law, it is love. Once you see that this God, how he loves and who he loves, he loves freely, but don't forget who he loves. Oh, he loves a room full of scoundrels. Once that begins to grow larger in your soul, then it acts with this repelling power to push out all of that stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, I can sit up here and harp all day long about you shall not commit adultery. And people will go commit adultery. But once you get a taste of beauty... Then it's that beauty that makes adultery look less attractive. It's, it's the beauty of the triumph of love. You know, I hesitate to mention this because every commentary you read mentions this, this sermon. It's a sermon by Thomas Chalmers, and the title of the sermon is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Doesn't that say volumes? The New Affection. That's the thing that produces the explosive power, and we sweep away all of that triviality and the insignificant. When I learn more and more about the triumph of love. Guys, I didn't know whether I was going to have time to read you this. But I've got six minutes left, and I think I can read it in about five. But if I take seven, um, you know, uh, my email address is um, brent at (laughs) (laughs) gracievan.org. I want to read you this, and I'm going to play with you, um, but you're going to get it. You're going to get it because you're bright. But it, it starts off with, who am I? Okay? I was born in 1725 and I died in 1807. The only godly influence in my life, as far back as I can remember, was my mother, whom I had only for seven years. When she left my life through death, I was virtually, virtually an orphan. My father quickly remarried and sent me to a strict military school where the severity of discipline almost broke my back. I couldn't stand it any longer. I left in rebellion at the educa- at the age of 10. One year later, deciding that I would never enter formal education again, I became a seaman's apprentice, hoping somehow to slip into my father's trade and learn it at, to learn at least the ability to skillfully navigate a ship. By and by, over a process of time, I slowly gave myself over to the devil, and I determined that I would sin to my fill without restraint now that the righteous lamp of my life had gone out. I did that until my days in the military service where again discipline worked hard against me, but I further rebelled. My spirit would not break and I became increasingly more and more a rebel. Because of a number of things I disagreed with in the military, I finally deserted only to be captured like a common criminal, criminal and beaten publicly several times. After enduring the punishment, I again fled. I entertained thoughts of suicide on my way to Africa, deciding that would be the place I would get farthest away from anyone who knew me. And again, I made a pact with the devil to live for him. Somehow through the process of events, I got in touch with a Portuguese slave trader and I lived in his home. He was married to a black wife who was brimming with hostility and took a lot of it out on me. And she beat me and ate, and and I ate like a dog on the floor of their home. If I refused to do that, she would whip me with a lash. I fled penniless, owning only the clothes on my back to the shoreline of Africa where I built a fire hoping to attract a ship that was passing by. The skipper thought that I had gold or slaves or ivory to sell and was surprised and disappointed to find only me who wanted somehow to find my way back to my country. He took me on board because I was a skilled navigator and it was there that I virtually lived for a long period of time. It was a slave ship. It was not uncommon for as many as 600 black Africans be in the whole of the ship down below being taken to America. I went through all sorts of narrow escapes with death only a hairbreadth away on a number of occasions. One time, I opened a number of crates of rum and got everybody on the crew drunk. The skipper, incensed with my actions, beat me, threw me down below, and, li- and I lived on stale bread and sour vegetables for an unendurable amount of time. He brought me above to beat me again, and I fell overboard. Because I couldn't swim, he harpooned me to get me back on the ship. And I lived with a scar in my side big enough for me to put my fist into until the day of my death. On board, I was inflamed with fever. I was enraged with humiliation, and a storm broke out, and I wound up again in the hold of the ship down among the pumps. To keep the ship afloat, I worked along as a servant of the slaves. They are bruised and confused and bleeding. The epitome of the degenerate man, I remembered the words of my mother. I cried out to God the only way I knew, calling upon His grace and His mercy to deliver me and upon His Son, upon His son to save me. The only glimmer of light I could find was a crack in the floor of the ship above me, and I looked up to it and, and I screamed for help. God heard me. 31 years passed. I married a childhood sweetheart, and I entered the ministry in every place that I served. Rooms had to be built on to handle the crowds that came to hear the gospel that was presented and to hear the story of God's grace in my life. I decided before my death to put my life story in verse, and that verse has become perhaps the greatest of all the hymns of the church. In fact, in 1979, the song experienced its 200th anniversary. My tombstone above my head reads... Born 1725, died 1807. Once an infidel infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, purchased, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he once long labored to destroy. My name, John Bunyan. And my song... Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Now guys, this is why I read this to you. You and I don't fully appreciate just how much like John Bunyan we are. And if we knew more of that, maybe some of us would write hymns. Maybe some of us would be so eloquent about grace and mercy. All because we know something about the triumph. Of love over sin and provocation. Ladies and gentlemen, we love because we've first been loved, but knowing that we've been loved. is supposed to produce a room full of ex-scoundrels who talk much about the love of God for sinners. Let's quit. Our Father, indeed, we have no more to offer you than John Newton did. We... um, We are a people who are prone to wander. We are a people who love sin. We are a people who cherish idols. And then we wonder why life is so complex. Forgive us, O God. And give us greater and greater drafts of the love of God down deep in our souls. Might we watch this God bearing with the sins of Jacob and Judah and Israel and then saying, I will love them freely. Might that become an expulsive power to drive out all of this carnality that exists inside us. Might we find a walk of holiness to be our delight because we have tasted of the rich and pure quality of the love of God. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.